Depression comes to all of us at times. I know personally. I suffer from depression myself and have most of my life. But if you can't seem to get out of it and you're using illegal drugs, alcohol, or other bad influences to try and escape the pain, you're not alone. Please stop and do me a favor. Call 800-831-1560. They'll show you a way out of the darkness. That's 800-831-1560. 800-831-1560. Welcome to another Weekend Archives episode of Weird Darkness. This episode was originally broadcast February 24, 2018. Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. The camp that became known as the worst hellhole prison camp of the Confederacy saw the arrival of its first Union prisoners on February 25, 1864. The camp had originally been intended merely to provide some relief for the city of Richmond. The city was experiencing a food shortage in 1863, and after General Grant ended prisoner exchanges and paroles, the people of Richmond found themselves with many more Federal prisoners than they could possibly feed. No one could have predicted that it would become the Civil War's greatest example of man's inhumanity to man. Also known as Camp Sumter, the prison camp was so notorious for its brutal treatment of Union prisoners that to this day the very mention of the name Andersonville can send shudders down the spine of any military history buff. And so does the name of the camp's commander, Captain Henry Wurz, who was arrested after the war for conspiring to impair the lives of Union prisoners of war. His two-month trial was a newspaper sensation and ended in his being sentenced to death. To the bitter end, Wurz protested his innocence, but to no avail. He was hanged on November 10, 1865, but as many have claimed, this was not the end of him. Some say his ghost has never left the place of death and torture for which he took the blame. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, weirdos. This is Weird Darkness, where you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved and unexplained. If you have a dark tale to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And be sure to subscribe if you've not done so already so you don't miss future uploads. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness… Does something evil reside in the Hollywood Forever Cemetery in Los Angeles? The U.S. Civil War was the bloodiest of all American wars, despite the fact that it was American fighting against American. But aside from the bloodshed, broken bones, and corpses that littered the battlefields, something even more horrifying was taking place in one particular POW camp holding Union prisoners. Barbara Forrest and Mary Ashford they lived in different centuries but they died in chillingly similar ways. 
And is it possible that Bill Ramsey is, in fact, a real-life werewolf? Now bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. In 1863, Confederate General John H. Winder sent his son, Captain W. Sidney Winder, to scout out a location for a new prison in Georgia. He discovered what he believed was the perfect site around November 24th. The parcel of land was located deep in the heart of the Confederacy and was far removed from attack. It was also a site where food would be abundant. Confederate officials planned a new prison on the property to be called Camp Sumter. It would contain a number of barracks which were designed to hold between 8 and 10,000 men. The site Captain Winder chose was in southwestern Georgia along Station No. 8 of the Georgia Southwestern Railroad. Because of this, it would be easily accessible by train. A local resident named Benjamin Dykes who owned a sawmill and gristmill offered a parcel of land for the prison which was extremely convenient for Dykes since the Army would be forced to buy his wood and grain for the prison construction and for food for the prisoners. The piece of land was heavily wooded with pine and oak, and the ground sloped down on both sides of a wide stream. Orders were given from Richmond to start construction, but the local people were violently opposed to the prison being located so close to them, so much so that labor was impossible to find. Work was delayed for some time before, finally, soldiers were forced to commandeer slaves from nearby farms. Just as construction of the prison compound was getting started, conditions in the South made it impossible to build barracks for the prisoners. Rail lines and distribution centers were greatly stressed by the war, so, out of desperation, the government ordered that a simple stockade be erected around the compound as quickly as possible. This work began in January. Trees were felled and then stood on end to form a large fence around the camp, enclosing an area of just over 16 acres. Only two trees were left standing inside the compound itself. On February 25, 1864, the first 600 prisoners arrived from Libby Prison in Richmond. One wall of the stockade was still not completed when they arrived. Confederate artillery pieces were trained on the opening until the wall was completed. Just shortly before the prisoners' arrival, the camp's first commander, Colonel Alexander W. Persons, took over his duties. He continued to serve until June 17th when he was replaced by General Winder. In March, the camp's most infamous commandant, Captain Henry Wurz, arrived at Andersonville. Heinrich Hartmann Wurz was born in Zurich, Switzerland in 1822. He graduated from college in Zurich and then went on to medical school in Paris and at the University of Berlin, receiving two Doctor of Medicine degrees. In 1849, following the failed revolutions of 1848 in the German states, he emigrated to the United States and settled in Kentucky where he married and established a medical practice. When the Civil War began, 
Wurz enlisted as a private in the Louisiana Volunteers. At the Battle of Seven Pines in May 1862, he was badly wounded and lost the use of his right arm. The Army found work for him, though, promoting him and placing him at prisons in Alabama and then in Richmond. Eventually, he was assigned to the staff of General Winder, the man in charge of Confederate prison camps, and ended up at the village of Andersonville in Sumter County, Georgia. From the very first, there was no organized arrangement for the compound. The prisoners had simply been put in the stockade and then left to themselves. Many of the prisoners who were transferred from other camps were in horrible condition when they arrived, infested with disease and vermin which quickly spread to the other men. The first arrivals at the camp had built huts within the compound using pieces of scrap lumber that had been left within the stockade. Later arrivals lived in tents or in holes they dug in the ground and covered over with blankets or scraps of cloth. In July 1864, the stockade was enlarged to accommodate more men, and within a week the camp's population had risen to 29,000. Less than a month later, it would rise again to its highest point of more than 33,000. Bizarrely, Andersonville technically became the fifth largest city in the Confederacy. As time progressed and the stockade became more crowded, food rations began to dwindle. The first staple to vanish was salt, followed by sweet potatoes, which had once been plentiful in the region. In time, the authorities reduced the amount of cornmeal handed out, and later meat was eliminated altogether. The rations continued to decrease, and soon they were not even handed out every day. On one occasion, when the bread wagon entered the stockade to make a delivery, it was mobbed by the inmates and all of the bread was stolen. Captain Wurz responded by canceling all further rations for the day. According to some prisoners, the more sadistic guards, usually those of the 55th Georgia, would toss chunks of cornbread into the pen just to watch the men scramble and fight over them. Many of the prisoners began to devise ways to capture low-flying birds, which swarmed about the stockade in the evenings. The swallows that were snared were often eaten raw, such was the hunger of the starving men. Security precautions at the prison camp became almost as legendary as the horrible conditions. The two regiments of Georgia and Alabama troops who guarded the camp were assisted by a battalion of cavalry and a large pack of savage bloodhounds. These dogs had been used before the war to track down runaway slaves, and they now were being used to bring back any escaped Federal prisoners. Despite the ferocity of the bloodhounds, there were still 329 successful escapes from Andersonville during the 15 months when the camp was in use. Most of them took place during work details, although the very first attempt occurred within a week of the camp's opening. A group of 15 men managed to scale the east wall using ropes made from woven pieces of cloth. All of them were recaptured thanks to the dogs, but the attempt caused the establishment of the deadline within the stockade. This deadline was a boundary that was erected inside the stockade walls, made by placing a rail of pine logs about 25 feet inside and parallel to the walls. Guards sitting in pigeon roosts located every 90 feet along the wall were ordered to fire without warning if a prisoner crossed or even touched the line. Soon, word got out in the northern press about the Andersonville deadline and it became infamous. 
The newspaper railed about the savagery of the Southern prisoners and the barbaric design of the deadline. At war's end, it would even be publicly condemned by the Union government. The problem was that despite all of the public posturing, the federal condemnation of the deadline was sheer hypocrisy. All stockade-type prisons had some sort of deadline for security, including the federal ones. This fact was hidden from the American public until after the war when Confederate prisoners returned home. It is ironic that while the American press was fulminating against the deadline at Andersonville, Confederate prisoners were being shot for crossing the same sort of lines in places like Camp Hoffman, Rock Island, Camp Douglas, and other spots. Once the deadline was established, tunneling became the preferred method of escape. With the digging came many problems. Every tunnel required a huge amount of secrecy, and in a situation where thousands of men were packed into a stockade, privacy was hard to find, and, as with most prisons, Andersonville had its share of informants. In one well-known situation, in May 1864, the Commandant entered the camp with a squad of guards searching for escape tunnels. One prisoner, thinking that he might get special treatment for informing on his comrades, told the commander about a tunnel that was under construction. The Confederates punished the prisoners involved and forced them to fill in the escape route. That night, the informant was nearly beaten to death by other prisoners. He was pursued through the night and into the next morning, and finally he crossed over the deadline and called for protection from the guards. He was sure that he had earned it because of the assistance that he'd given them. Instead, they shot him for crossing the deadline. Soon, escapes grew more innovative. There were so many dead men being carried out of the camp that little attention was paid to them. When a prisoner died, he was placed in front of his tent and then carried away by a detail of other prisoners. Several quick-thinking men pretended to be dead and were carried outside the gate, then placed in a pile to await burial. As soon as darkness fell, they would escape. This plan was successful a number of times before Captain Wurz got wind of it and changed the burial policy. After that, all of the bodies were left inside the stockade until a surgeon could examine them. There were certainly many opportunities for escape using this method, since death was no stranger to the camp. The main causes of death were scurvy, dysentery, typhoid, smallpox, gangrene, and diarrhea, but outright murder became commonplace as well. In fact, the murder of prisoners by guards and even by other prisoners became a daily occurrence. Among the prisoners were groups of men referred to as raiders. These groups ruled the stockade using fear and retaliation against any who opposed them. They preyed on the other inmates, taking food and belongings from them and even beating and killing anyone who crossed them. The largest and most vicious of the raider groups was led by William Collins of the 88th Pennsylvania Regiment. His men dominated not only the other prisoners but the other raid as well, looting and murdering as they saw fit. Finally, a group of prisoners banded together and they somehow obtained aid from the Commandant. He allowed them to take matters into their own hands, and they arrested the raiders. A military trial was held and 24 of the raiders were punished with six of them hanged. Three of the other 18 men later died from retaliatory beatings. In the years that have passed since the closing of Andersonville, 
and the end of the war, the ghosts of the Raiders have been blamed for most of the strange happenings in the area. This is perhaps merely legend, but many have claimed the Raiders to be responsible for numerous weird events. The odd sights and sounds include apparitions of soldiers around the location of the former camp, the sounds of groans and echoing voices, and the sound of what seems to be a number of men tramping about the site of the former camp. By September 1864, the majority of the prisoners had been transferred out of Andersonville due to Union activity in the area and because of the northern occupation of Atlanta. In the weeks that followed, it was reported that as many as 6,000 were sent to other camps. Those who were too weak or sick to travel remained behind, leaving just over 8,000 men in the camp. A huge number of those prisoners died in October, so by November, just over 1,300 men were left. In October, General Winder was transferred out and Colonel George C. Gibbs arrived to assume command of Andersonville. From that point, the camp took the role of a convalescent prison. As soon as the prisoners gained enough strength to travel, they were transferred to other facilities for a short time. The remaining Andersonville prisoners were paroled in May 1865. It is believed that as many as 13,000 prisoners died during the time the camp was in operation. The last prisoner parolees brought an end to the history of the Civil War's most notorious prison camp. Or did it? To this day, the ghost of Henry Wurz is believed to haunt the site of Andersonville Prison. Legend has it that the ghost was also rumored to have haunted the old brick capital in Washington for a number of years, but apparently his spirit returned to the place of his greatest notoriety. Some believe that it may be Wurz's ghost that has been seen walking along the road near the site of the old camp. They believe that his spirit does not rest because of the terrible blot on his reputation that came about after the war. Captain Wurz always insisted that he was unjustly accused of crimes committed at Andersonville. He went to the gallows, claiming his innocence. But was he innocent? Wurz was never a popular officer, even before his arrival at Andersonville. He was disliked by nearly everyone, including his subordinates and his own staff. He was especially hated and ridiculed by the prisoners for his heavy accent and overbearing personality. In 1864, Wurz was sent to Andersonville as the Commandant and continued in service there until after Lee's surrender. At that time, he turned over the camp to Union General J. H. Wilson and ended his career in the Confederate military. A short time later, he was placed under arrest by Captain Henry E. Noyce and charged with misconduct against Union prisoners at Andersonville. Wurz protested the arrest, stating that conditions at the prison had been beyond his control. He begged his captors to allow him to leave and take his family to Europe. Instead, he was taken to Washington and officially charged with impairing the health and destroying the lives of prisoners. The arrest of Wurz was part of a much wider response to the American thirst for revenge against the Confederacy. It was believed that by arresting Wurz, the government might be able to placate the public. Whether Wurz was responsible for all of the horrors of the camp, though, was questionable. There was no question that terrible suffering took place at Andersonville and little doubt that Wurz was a harsh and possibly sadistic commander. However, 
Southern contemporary accounts insisted that he did the best job possible under extreme conditions. There was no question that Andersonville was the South's most impoverished and overcrowded prison. There are many today who believe that Wurz was nothing more than a scapegoat for the poor condition of the Confederate prisons and a victim of the post-war backlash against the South. The trial of Henry Wurz began in August of 1865, ending a three-and-a-half-month feeding frenzy by the press. While the former captain waited in jail, the Northern newspapers had already tried and convicted him many times over. He had been portrayed as a monster who maliciously sent scores of Union soldiers to their deaths. Attorneys for the federal government began their case against Wurz, presenting evidence in the form of records, documents, and testimony from former prisoners and from Union officers who had inspected the camp after its surrender. The witnesses were not always reliable, as several of them stated that they had seen Wurz strike, kick, and shoot prisoners in August 1864, during a time when the Commandant was absent from the camp on sick leave. Of all the testimony, perhaps the most damaging came from a man named Félix de la Bonne, who claimed to be the nephew of a Revolutionary War hero, General Lafayette. He spent several hours on the witness stand describing the defendant's cruel treatment of prisoners and his total disregard for the nightmarish conditions of the camp. Baum's testimony appeared in newspapers across the country, and in the end, it sealed Wurz's fate. Baum was rewarded for his testimony with a position in the Interior Department. After the trial, it was learned that he had been a deserter from the Union Army and was not descended from General Lafayette. On November 6, 1865, Wurz was condemned to death. Not long before his sentence was carried out, a secret emissary from the War Department offered him a reprieve in exchange for a statement that would convict Jefferson Davis of conspiracy to murder prisoners. Wurz refused. Henry Wurz was hanged in the yard of the Old Brick Capitol on November 10, 1865. He was the only Confederate officer to be convicted and executed for war crimes. He maintained his innocence and was defiant until the very end. As he said to the officer in charge of directing his hanging, I know what orders are, Major. I am being hung for obeying them. Was Captain Wurz ultimately responsible for the horrific conditions at Andersonville? Was he to blame for the deaths of thousands of Union soldiers? The question remains unanswered, but it seems that his spirit remains behind to try and restore his reputation. There is little doubt in the minds of witnesses that the apparition that they have seen pacing through the site of the former prison camp is that of the infamous prison commander. The officer in the neat gray uniform is, like worse, ruggedly handsome, with the short beard and the hat that the commander always wore. Often he wanders the grounds restless and looking inconsolable, shaking his head or talking silently yet wildly animated to himself. On other occasions he is seen standing in place, by the road or in the stockade area, a mute reminder of his possible innocence. Or perhaps he is merely sentenced to remain in this world as punishment for his crimes.
While I was in Los Angeles in October of 2003, beginning my celebrity grave hunting adventures at the famous Hollywood Forever Cemetery, I had a rather strange experience. As I was walking toward the Abbey of the Psalms Mausoleum, a feeling of dread came over me. I could think of no idea why I should feel so afraid, but as I got closer to it, the feeling grew. It got to the point where I was forcing myself to go forward. I don't know how far away from it I was when I finally stopped, but one thing was for sure – I could not continue and would not approach any further. In all the other parts of the cemetery, I felt nothing but peace among the stillness of the graves and tombs, but for some strange reason, the Abbey of the Psalms Mausoleum was different. At first, I couldn't figure out why, but then I felt that there was definitely something wrong about the place. I felt the need to try and get closer, and as I did, I felt the presence of something there, the presence of something that shouldn't have been there at all. A mausoleum is supposed to be part of a sacred grounds, but I felt nothing sacred about this place. My theory is that, somehow, a gate or door exists there, a gate or door to a place dark, cold, and foreboding, a place of evil. And I think that it is through this gateway or door that something enters our world, something that has no business being here. There is a knock at the door late at night. You answer it to find two small children standing there. You're suddenly filled with an inexplicable fear. Let us in, they say. We need to use the phone. It's at that point the fear turns to utter dread as you see that these kids have completely black eyes. The Black-Eyed Kids is an exploration of this terrifying phenomenon using true stories of encounters with black-eyed kids submitted to the My Haunted Life 2 website. G. Michael Vasey examines the evidence and investigates the terrifying black-eyed kids phenomenon, coming to some startling and shocking conclusions. Are they demonic soul-eaters responsible for the disappearance of some of the 90,000 Americans missing at any point in time? Or is this just another urban legend? another boogeyman designed to keep you awake at night. Listen to the book and find out. The Black-Eyed Kids by G. Michael Vasey, narrated by Weird Darkness host Darren Marlar. Hear a free sample on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com. Well, it's the new year, and that means New Year's resolutions, right? So what's your New Year's resolution? To lose weight? To exercise more? maybe to give up a habit, well, doing any of those things is going to be a lot easier if you have a good night's sleep first. And now's the perfect time if you've not already tried a MyPillow, because right now you can get two premium and two go-anywhere pillows for one low price with free shipping. Now, if you've been a weirdo for any length of time, you know I do not promote anything here unless I believe in it myself. I'm already using a MyPillow. I've got one of their seat cushions, which helped me immensely with some back issues I was having uh, in the office. And I also have one of their Go Anywhere pillows, which also helps out with the back problems. And I use it in the family room on my recliner, just lounging around. 
and now in the mail on its way is a mattress topper for me. I, I just want to try it. But now is the perfect time to try my pillow. Get two premium my pillows and two go anywhere pillows for one low price with free shipping. All you have to do is visit mypillow.com and then use the promo code WEIRD. Click on the four pack special when you're there. MyPillow.com, click on the four-pack special, and then use the promo code WEIRD. Or you can call 800-945-7192. That's 800-945-7192. Ask for the four-pack special and use the promo code WEIRD for free shipping. Looking at the evidence of the two Erdington murders, a detective might easily conclude he was looking for just one killer. Both victims were young women, just 20 years old. Both women spent their last night dancing. Both women were killed on the same day of the year, May 27th. Both bodies were found in the same spot. And, most telling, the prime suspect in both cases was a man named Thornton. The only problem? The two murders occurred 157 years apart. Adding to this eerie coincidence, both Thorntons were acquitted, and so both murders remain still unsolved. On May 27, 1974, the body of Barbara Forrest, a nurse at a children's home, was found in a ditch on the edge of Pipe Hayes Park in Erdington, a ward of Birmingham, England. She had been raped and strangled. Suspicion fell on one of her co-workers, Michael Ian Thornton, who lived nearby. Blood was found on his pants and his alibi for the night Barbara disappeared turned out to be false, but this was a decade before DNA was used as evidence. The case against Thornton was entirely circumstantial and he was acquitted. Though tragic, this story would never have attracted so much attention if it weren't for the fact that it was an almost identical repeat of another murder that happened in the very same place 157 years earlier. On May 27, 1817, the body of Mary Ashford was found in a muddy pool in what would later be Pipe Hayes Park. There were footsteps belonging to a man in the mud. Mary's arms were bruised and authorities suspected she had been raped before she was killed. Like Barbara, Mary had spent her last night dancing. Among the men she was seen dancing with was Abraham Thornton, who was arrested. Thornton admitted to having sex with Ashford after the dance but insisted it was consensual and that he did not kill her. It was determined that Ashford died of drowning popular opinion was strongly against Thornton at the trial, but, as in the case 157 years later, there was no direct physical evidence, and Ashford was acquitted of both murder and rape. Ashford's brother demanded a new trial, convinced that Thornton was guilty. Thanks to the old style of law at the time, his request was granted, but Thornton pulled out an even older bit of law dating back to the Middle Ages he demanded a trial by battle. At that time, the law was still on the books and, amazingly, the judge allowed it. If Thornton lost the battle, he would be hanged, 
but if he won, he would be acquitted. Ashford's brother declined the battle, and once again Thornton went free. Despite being cleared of blame, public opinion remained heavily against Thornton. Eventually, after quite some time of intense ostracization, Thornton fled to America to begin a new life. The strange similarities between the Erdington murders continue to haunt locals to this day. Many who believe that the connection between the cases is more than coincidence will cite the two victims' words just before their slaying. Mary Ashford told a friend's mother that she had some bad feelings about the week to come. Barbara Forrest told a co-worker that she believed this is going to be my unlucky month, I just know it. The girl's predictions would both come eerily true within days. Andy Warhol once said that, in the future, everybody will be world-famous for 15 minutes. This is certainly true of an unassuming carpenter, Bill Ramsey. Born and bred in the Essex seaside town of Southend, the first inkling of trouble came when William Ramsey was just nine years old. Like any normal child, he was outside in his back garden when he began to feel strange. It was deep into one Saturday afternoon in 1952 when an icy blast of frigid cold swept all over him. Perspiration froze on his skin, and a foul stench came close to making him vomit. The bewildered youngster only had two things on his mind – running away to a life on the ocean wave and wolves. By this time, he was close to the garden fence, and only the calls of his mother brought him out of whatever had gripped him. However, something else took complete control of him instead. Intense and pure rage had installed itself firmly within his psyche. Using this and the adrenaline-fueled strength he now possessed, he had uprooted a fence post, with the fence still attached, and was swinging it like a club. Not even his parents could easily remove the post with their bare hands. What the young child did next made both of his parents flee back into the relative safety of their home, leaving Bill isolated outside. Bill Ramsey placed the wire meshing into his mouth and began gnawing at it. The cold sensations returned and a low growl emanated from deep within him. Both his parents remained inside the house until it was apparent that their son had calmed down considerably. For nearly 15 years after that terrifying incident, nothing even remotely similar happened in the life of Bill Ramsey. He had grown up, got married, and became a doting father of three. The first two years of his marriage, though, were plagued by nightmares. Each dream was the same, and the results ended up identical as well. Ramsey always awoke in a cold sweat and was overwhelmed by feelings of dread and unease. In his dream, he was always a few steps behind his wife who would then turn to face him and run away in extreme terror. It was only in 1967 that these dreams ended. Eighteen months on, and Bill woke up one night 
to hear what he thought was the panting of a wild animal somewhere inside the bedroom. He was correct. It was Bill himself. Once again, there was a lull in activity for approximately 15 years. It was now 1983 and Bill was out with some friends at a local pub. After several drinks, Bill began to feel the same icy chills that first manifested much earlier in his life. He made an excuse and headed to the lavatory. Once there, he checked himself in the mirror and saw a wolf looking back at him. This was just a precursor as to what was to happen on their way home. In the car ride home and without any warning, Bill began to growl and immediately turned to his fellow passenger. Both hands twisted into claws and Ramsey tried to bite the leg of his friend. The designated driver didn't panic. He brought the car to a stop and made attempts to get the raging Bill out of the back of the car. It still took several minutes and quite a bit of effort to finally get Bill out of the car. By now, the frenzy had dissipated. Worse was to come, but not for another 18 months. Shortly before Christmas 1983, Bill began to suffer from chest pains and thoughts immediately turned to a possible heart attack. Bill checked himself into the emergency room of the local hospital and was halfway through a blood pressure examination when he sank his teeth into the arm of the nurse and ran through the ward like a man possessed. Witnesses would later reveal that Bill had hunched shoulders and both hands had curled into talons or claws, and his lips were bared just like a rabid animal. Anyone that dared approach was knocked down easily with almost superhuman strength. It took quite a few people working as a team to finally subdue the rampaging man. A police officer managed to place handcuffs around Ramsey's wrists, but still this was not sufficient. A tranquilizer finally put an end to the outburst. The following morning, this tranquilizer had worn off, and so did the original transformation. After a hearty breakfast, the attending doctor listened to the whole story and recommended that Bill remain under observation. However, he was a voluntary patient and was fully entitled to check himself out. Bill did so, but was back within the span of two months. In January 1984, Bill had just finished a visit to his mother when he began to feel an attack coming on again. He made it to the same hospital on the same terms of his previous visit. The attending nurse was alone with Ramsey in the emergency room and feared for her life once she told Ramsey that she was going to find a doctor. Ramsey threw her to one side and lunged for an orderly. By chance, four police officers entered the hospital and immediately circled Ramsey. The officers and Ramsey had a standoff for a few seconds until Ramsey began snarling and growling at all four. The policemen advanced on Ramsey, who defended himself with some vigor. One of the four police officers suffered wounds so severe he ended up in the hospital for another four days. All four managed to handcuff Ramsey again. The short walk to the waiting squad car went off without incident, as Ramsey had apparently regained his faculties. When he arrived at the local police station, the police surgeon was immediately summoned. Ramsey considered the suggestion of checking himself into a mental institution, but decided against it, citing the stigma that he might feel in the days to follow. Since he was clearly in control and rational, Ramsey was released. In the summer of 1987, he was back at the police station. This time, however, he was much more public-spirited. 
Having made a citizen's arrest to a local teenage prostitute, he drove her to the station. The second that he parked his car, she fled into the station. Ramsey once again felt the now familiar sensations surging from the middle of his chest, just as a burly policeman approached the car. The officer, considerably bigger than Ramsey, started to question him and made the big mistake of gently touching Ramsey's arm. The wolf within him took immediate hold of Ramsey and the officer was thrown to the ground and was having the life choked out of him until help finally came. Ramsey was so wild that it took a dozen policemen to hold him down and two injections to finally restrain him. For the next 10 days, countless MRIs, X-rays, and psychiatric tests could not determine what was wrong with Ramsey. Clearly, there was some issue that needed resolving. Nobody should really switch from mild-mannered rational to rampaging berserker and back again in the space of a few minutes, unless there is something seriously wrong. One thing that went in Bill's favor was the visit to London of American demonologists Ed and Lorraine Warren. Bill's story appeared on a television show at the time of their stay. Lorraine immediately considered that Bill was being possessed and got in touch with the South End-on-Sea police station. After dialogue on both sides, the Warrens were given the chance to talk to the Ramseys. The Warrens negotiated with Bill Ramsey and finally convinced him to come to their church in Connecticut and undergo an exorcism with their own specialist, Bishop Robert McKenna. Bill relented and made the trip with his wife in 1989. The tabloid newspaper, The People, sponsored the trip. The night before the exorcism was due to take place, Ramsey tried to strangle his wife while she slept. When the exorcism actually began, Bill was not at all impressed. The service was being conducted in Latin, and for half an hour, nothing was happening. Bill then took on an entirely different appearance. His face contorted, and both hands formed claws. McKenna commanded the demon to leave. The full force of werewolf fury descended on McKenna one time and then disappeared for good. The whole event was recorded on film. So, has it finally ended? Bill Ramsey last appeared in public in 1992 when he updated his progress. Just before his exorcism, the transformations were increasing in both frequency and seriousness. Since that time, there have been no incidents recorded. No one has been rampaging uncontrollably through the streets of South End-on-Sea in almost 15 years now. But Bill Ramsey has been quiet for just as long as that before. Do you have a dark tale to tell? You can share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. The following stories from this episode are purported to be true and you can find links in the show notes. Hellhole of the Confederacy was written by Troy Taylor from his book Soldiers and the Supernatural. A link to a signed copy of that book is in the show notes. Hollywood Forever was posted on Your Ghost Stories website written by Ghoster2K. The Eerie Similarities of the Erdington Murders was posted at thelineup.com. And Bill Ramsey, the South End Werewolf, was written by Les Hewitt for the Historic Mysteries website. Music in this episode 
is by Shadows Symphony. You can find them online at facebook.com slash shadows symphony. And if you like news, politics, and laughs, you can check out my other podcast at dailydoseofweirdnews.com. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness. Have you been dreaming of writing your own book? Have you already written one? How would you like to be a published author with Dorrance Publishing? They've been working with authors and publishing great books for nearly a hundred years, and your book could be next. And they cover it all. They edit your text, design your book pages, create a great-looking cover for your book. Plus, as one of their authors, you'll also benefit from a custom book promotion marketing campaign, making your book available everywhere people buy books – online like Amazon, but also brick-and-mortar bookstores. Your only job is to write the book. Call Dorans Publishing toll-free at 800-847-1362 800-847-1362. Even if you're only curious, it's still worth making this free call to get their free author's guide to becoming a published author. Call Dorrance Publishing at 800-847-1362. Imagine, someday I might be promoting your book in my podcast. 800-847-1362. Anywhere and anything can be haunted, and many people from all walks of life experience strange things in surprising locations. As you will discover, the prettiest of places, the most innocent of places, and the most unexpected places can still be filled with supernatural forces and pure demonic malevolence. Haunted places, churches, hospitals, forests, the workplace, and more. Horrifying true tales of ghosts, demons, poltergeists, and the paranormal. Come and be chilled by people's creepy experiences with the supernatural in ordinary, everyday places. Warning: Listening to this audiobook may increase nervousness. True Tales of Haunted Places by G. Michael Vasey Narrated by Weird Darkness host Darren Marlar. You're a free sample on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com. <laughs>